well. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, it's good to see you guys here this morning. I do hope you're having a good weekend so far. Hopefully you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. Uh, unless you have little kids and then you've just been up longer waiting to come to church forever, right? Um, well, look, I, I don't know if you were here last week, but if you were, I thought it was a, a, a pretty special morning, a, a special celebration service from, again, that baby that was just so darn cute, getting dedicated to the three baptisms, which were also very special to Hannah's testimony. It was a pretty awesome morning. To see how God is moving and working in the life of our church. Now, as Rich said this morning, though, we are jumping back into this series that we've called Behold, It Was Very Good. And so far in this series, we have talked about the goodness of creation, the, the goodness of our physical bodies, and the, the hope of future resurrected bodies when Christ returns. We also, two weeks ago in this series, addressed the topic of abortion and talked about how the Bible views life how it views children. And if you missed that message, I would strongly encourage you to go back and watch it because I think Pastor Chris did such an excellent job describing what we believe about this topic of abortion and why we believe it based on the scriptures. And so again, if you missed that, please go back and watch it. As for today, though, we thought we would address a much easier, a much lighter topic, one that's not, you know, so culturally controversial, not nearly as difficult to think through. And that's sexuality and gender. <laughs> no, all, all kidding aside, um, that is where we are going today. And because of that, I do want to say up front to our parents, hopefully you saw that email that we sent out on Friday, that this is where we were headed. And have thought through whether or not you want your kids in here for this. In fact, for myself, I realized about halfway through the week that I was going to have a middle schooler in here. And I realized we hadn't really had a lot of conversations about this topic. And so I pulled him aside and said, hey, I need to talk to you about something before Sunday. And so parents, just with that said, if you missed that or if you're new with us, do whatever you need to do right now. Because this morning will definitely be a little more on the PG side of things. Now maybe you're uh, wondering to yourself, why are we addressing this topic? Isn't this just a cultural issue or isn't this just a political issue? In other words, why is the church getting involved? Well, a couple things that I would say to that is, number one, this is not a topic the church has gone looking for. We didn't start the conversation, and we aren't the ones who changed our view of sexuality and gender the culture has. And yet, because the Bible does speak to this issue, we need to talk about it and address it. I think the second thing I would say in terms of why uh, we are addressing this is because we are convinced that clarity is kindness. How many of you have ever been shopping or buying food at a restaurant or a food truck and all of a sudden you go to pay for it and you find out that they only take cash for payment and you didn't bring any? I know that's happened to me a few times throughout the years and when it does, you're left thinking, man, I wish they would have made it more obvious, made it more clear by putting a sign on the front door, by saying something when I walked in because now I feel kind of embarrassed and even frustrated that I can't do what I was hoping to do, namely buy some food. And in the same way, when it comes to certain topics, particularly, I think, LGBTQ topics, I think what our church and other churches have discovered or learned over the years is that being really clear and really upfront about what we do or don't believe is actually more loving and kind to a person with a different view rather than trying to delay that conversation until later. And so in order to avoid confusion, 
or bait and switch tactics, we are persuaded that clarity is kindness. And because of that, we're going to address this topic. Now, I do want to say also up front that I'm by no means an expert on this issue. I have read quite a bit on it. I've listened to firsthand accounts of people in the trans community and people who struggle with gender dysphoria. Personally, I've never experienced gender dysphoria, and so there's a, a degree to which I don't totally get it. And because of that, I do agree with Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, who wrote this. She said, sometimes we love people best by acknowledging that we don't understand. And so again, I don't fully understand. I've never struggled with my gender identity. Now, even with that said, I am a Christian. I'm a student of the Bible. And because of that, I think I can respond by talking about how the scriptures view sexuality and gender. And so with that, as far as an outline this morning, what I want to do is I want to try to answer these three basic questions. Number one, how does our current secular culture view sexuality and gender? Number two, how does the Bible view sexuality and gender? And then finally, how should the church and how should believers respond to all of this? Now, before we get into these questions, let me open us up with a word of prayer. And like we have for the last several weeks, I also want to pray for Israel and all that's going on there, as well as issue one as we uh, are headed to the voting box this next week. So pray with me. Father. Just pray right now that the Holy Spirit would come, His presence would fill this room, that He would open our minds and our hearts to receive Your Word, Lord. Lord, that we would have tender hearts towards You, towards Your truth, Lord, that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know You and obey You and obey Your Word. And Father, we do pray for our friends in Israel, Lord. Lord, what a mess. Father, we ask that you would intervene in some way, Lord, that there would be preservation of life, that this would come to an end quickly. Father, we do pray for issue one, Lord. We know that there's a lot at stake here on Tuesday. And we just ask, Lord, that you'd have compassion on us. Lord, we pray that it would fail. It doesn't seem like it's going to based on poll numbers, but we pray that somehow it would fail. Lord, we know that, that even if it did fail, it wouldn't do away with the issue of abortion, and abortions would still take place in our land. But Father, we just we ask that you'd have compassion on us and you'd intervene. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so starting with this first question here, how does our current secular culture view sexuality and gender? Well, I think there is no doubt or no denying that there has been a dramatic change in our culture in terms of how we view this issue. For almost all of human history, gender and biological sex have been intricately connected and combined. In other words, the terms gender and sex were essentially synonyms for each other. However, though, in the last couple of years, all of that has changed. You see, 10 or 15 years ago, you may have been at the doctor's office, or maybe you were submitting an application or filling out some other kind of paperwork, and somewhere on that document, it would ask you either, what is your gender, or it might ask you, what is your sex, but it wouldn't ask you both questions. 
Not only that, but the paperwork would also give you only two options to check, and that would be male or female. Whereas now, often when you fill out paperwork, you most likely will see on it both a category for gender or gender expression and a category or a question around biological sex. Now, not only has that been a significant change, but when it comes to gender, no longer are there just the simple two categories of male and female, but at last count, according to medicinenet.com, there are over 72 different genders. And even according to one site I saw this week, it said for the year 2023, there are now over 107 different gender identities. Now, maybe you're wondering, how did all of this happen and how is this even possible? Well, we don't really have time to get into the actual history of how did we get here culturally, but writers and thinkers have traced this historically, and probably the best book that describes how we got here is theologian Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, it's a big book. It's, it's very academic. However, though, it's probably one of the most important books written in the last 10 years. In fact, it's so important that people urge Truman to make a simplified, less academic version of it, which he has done, and that book is called Strange New World. And basically, what Truman is doing in both of those books is he's trying to answer the question, how did the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, go from being incoherent and ridiculous to say, maybe our grandparents' generation, to coherent and meaningful in our society today, right? Like that's a, that's a very significant shift. And again, for most of us, it has felt like this all happened overnight. But as Truman points out and even argues for in the book, the groundwork for this way of thinking has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, going all the way back to the Enlightenment and back to people like Rousseau. And then from there, what we see is that from Rousseau and the Enlightenment, the Romantics came on and they grabbed a hold of some of those ideas. And so poets like Blake and Shelley and others took it and ran with it. And then you get some political figures like Marx and Darwin and Nietzsche and Freud. And, and before long, the scaffolding fell into place and was built. And next thing you know, what was once considered ridiculous or illogical is now accepted and assumed and normalized. Again, we don't have time to get into all of that and really flesh out the history, but in terms of what's going on currently with us, what we see is that the main shift that has taken place is that our culture has given new definitions to words like sex and gender. Again, as I said earlier, the word sex and gender were used interchangeably, but now they have been separated into two different categories. Today, when most people mean sex, or specifically biological sex, what they are talking about is our physical bodies. For example, biologically, men have XY chromosomes and women have XX chromosomes. Men and women have different external sexual anatomy. They also have different internal reproductive organs. Men and women also have endocrine systems which release different amounts of hormones into their bodies. Men have more testosterone in their systems, and women have more estrogen. And so again, biological sex refers to those kinds of things. 
Now, gender, on the other hand, has been separated and divorced from sex. And now gender is typically defined as referring to your own internal sense of self. And also how you express that in terms of your outward uh, display with clothing, mannerisms, or interest. Now, with this, you may hear people talk about things like gender identity or gender expression. Again, one refers to how you view yourself or how you identify, and the other refers to how you outwardly express that identity to others. According to Medical News Today, gender is different than sex. Although genetic factors typically define a person's sex, gender refers to how they identify inside. Only the person themselves can determine what their gender identity is. The World Health Organization says on their website that gender refers to the characteristics of women, men, girls, and boys that are socially constructed. Gender identity refers to a person's deeply felt internal and individual experience of gender, which may or may not correspond to the person's physiology or designated sex at birth. Okay, so what we see here is that some, even in the medical community, are arguing for this separation of terms. Now, in terms of how does pop culture think about all of this, I think it can be summed up by what Chaz Bono, Sonny and Cher's trans child, has said, which is this, gender is between your ears, not between your legs. Now, I know that's a little crass, so forgive me, but I do think it very succinctly lays out for us how many in our secular culture view these things. In fact, in a a BBC documentary called Transgender Kids, they put it like this. They said, at the heart of the debate about transgender children is the idea that your brain can be at war with your body. You see, this feeling or this phenomenon of being at war with your body is what some refer to as gender dysphoria. In other words, this is uh, where there is an incongruence between what your biological sex is and what your gender identity is. And right now, the prevailing view in our secular culture is that if there is incongruence, between what your brain tells you and what your body tells you, you should trust your brain over your body. And commenting on this viewpoint, Nancy Piercy, in her wonderful book, Love Thy Body, says this, I ran across an internet forum discussing transgenderism, where a commenter wrote, what does some little bit of flesh between the legs matter? Why should that make a difference to your sense of who you are? This is a devastating, reductive view of the body. Young people are absorbing the idea that the physical body is no part of the authentic self, that the authentic self is only the autonomous choosing self. This is ancient Gnosticism and new garb. You see, because our culture has bought into this way of thinking, when someone does experience incongruence or dysphoria, what they are then told is that they need to take measures to correct that or to relieve that, either through how they dress and act, or even in some cases, through medical intervention with things like hormone replacement therapy or reassignment surgery. And not only are adults doing this, but so are kids and teens. 
And in fact, it's happening in our culture at alarming rates. And not only that, but what's also concerning is that historically, gender dysphoria has affected more boys than girls. And even with that, the stats show that for the most of them, statistically, their dysphoria goes away shortly after puberty. But now we are seeing incredible rates of just gender dysphoria among teenage girls. In fact, one stat I saw this week said that a mental health clinic in London called the Travistock Center, it's one of their leading clinics on this, that they treated 17 female patients in 2009 for gender dysphoria. But in 2019, they treated 1,740 female patients, which is a 5,000% increase in just 10 years. That's why some, including non-Christians like Abigail Schreier, are arguing that this has become a social contagion, like what we have seen in the past with things like eating disorders or cutting. And there's no doubt that social media and pop culture and the news, our, our education system, and even the medical community has played a major role in that increase. And not only is the, the rapid rate of dysphoria alarming, but in terms of medical intervention, be it hormone replacement or, or reassignment surgery, there are permanent and very serious physical and medical consequences. In other words, there is irreversible damage that takes place which can forever change someone's life and future. And so because of that, the stakes in this discussion are very, very high. And so in light of this, let's go to the second question now, which is how does the Bible view sexuality and gender? Well, if you would, let's go ahead and turn now to our anchor passage in this series, which is Genesis 1 which is found on page one, conveniently. And starting in verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the, the face of all the earth, and to every tree with the seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, so what we are, uh, here we are looking in Genesis 1. And remember, for context's sake, uh, not only does Genesis 1 and 2 describe creation for us, but they also are the only two chapters in the Bible which describe both humans and the world and its pre-fall condition. 
And because of that, virtually all biblical scholars argue that these two chapters are fundamental in constructing and determining our Christian understanding and worldview, particularly when it comes to human nature and sexuality. And so if that's true, and I think that it is, what does Genesis 1, 26 to 31 teach us about humanity? Well, I think it teaches us at least these four things, or I think we see four things here. Number one, I think the first thing that we learn is that human beings are created in the image of God. Look again at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, why is that significant? And what does it mean in terms of this discussion on gender? Well, one thing that I think you need to understand here is that in this section, in chapter 1, every time we see the word man, it refers to mankind or humankind. In other words, what this is saying is not, let us make males in our image, but rather, let us make mankind in our image. And the reason that is significant is because there are aspects of God's image that are reflected in females, and there are aspects of God's image that are reflected in males, and together, male and female collectively, we reflect God's image. You see, I don't totally understand it, but somehow our sex differences are part of what it means to reflect God's image. And if God would have created only Adam and not Eve, that mirroring God's image would have been insufficient. However, though, because we are created in his image, that also means that our bodies are sacred and special. They're unique. They're not some insignificant or non-essential part of us. We are not primarily souls who just happen to have a body. No, as Preston Sprinkle has pointed out, virtually all biblical scholars recognize the Bible considers the body to be a core aspect of who we are, as we've already saw in Genesis 1 to 2. We don't just have bodies, we are bodies. Yes, we have immaterial aspects of our human nature, but these are viewed as part of our embodied existence, not something separate from it. We are not souls with bodies, but embodied souls. Which is why when Christ returns, we will be given new physical resurrected bodies. We will not stay in some sort of immaterial soul state for eternity. No, we will be given new physical bodies. And so what we see here is that being created in God's image is really important because together men and women reflect his image. And it's also important because it means our bodies are sacred and essential. A second really important thing we see here in this passage, and I've already alluded to it, is that God created two and only two distinct genders and sexes. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So what we see here is that in terms of when it comes to gender and when it comes to sexuality, not only are these two ideas in terms not separated, but we also see here that male and female are the only two options. There's not 72. There's not 107 different genders. There's only two. Well, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, this is at the beginning of things. 
And this is even in a pre-sin or a pre-fall condition. And so, yeah, maybe things started out with just two genders or two sexualities, but things have changed. Well, let's look now at a passage that is post-fall. And not only is it post-fall, but it's actually from the lips of Jesus himself. And so if you're looking at a Bible, keep your place in Genesis 1, but flip now to Matthew chapter 19. It's on page 824 if you're using one of our chair Bibles. In this passage, just for context sake, Jesus is being asked about divorce by some Pharisees. And they ask him, starting in verse 3, this. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus, answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so what we see here is that Jesus now is referring back to Genesis 1.27 and back to the creation story. And in doing so, he affirms the fact that God's original creation of humans as male and female is normative and is not just relevant for the beginning of creation. In other words, here is Jesus post-fall pointing back to a pre-fall moment, and he is saying, as it was at the beginning, so it should be now. Now, of course, he is primarily referring to marriage, but even still, the fact that he mentions God creating male and female as the two gendered sexes is, I think, very informative. According to Jesus, God created males and God created females, period. Now, it is interesting that in the same chapter, just a few verses later, Jesus does seem to allude to the fact that the fall has negatively affected our bodies. For example, after telling the disciples that divorce is only permissible if there's sexual immorality, the disciples freak out and they're like, well, hey, maybe it's better not to marry then. But then starting in verse 11, Jesus responds to them by saying this, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay, we can't really get sidetracked on this passage because there's a lot that goes into it. But I just wanted to bring it up because Jesus acknowledges that some people are eunuchs from birth. Now, traditionally, in ancient times, eunuchs were men who were either castrated or they were men who were unable to produce offspring. And one of the roles that they would often play is that they would look out for wealthy females or female royalty. And again, I don't want to get sidetracked on that discussion, but many scholars here think that in mentioning that there are people who are eunuchs from birth, Jesus is possibly alluding to something like intersex conditions. Now, intersex conditions are a very real and a very painful reality for some people. Intersex conditions lead to a person being infertile and unable to have children. A very small percentage of intersex individuals have medical conditions which lead to them being born with genitals that are ambiguous or not fully formed due to genetic or hormonal abnormalities. 
You see, actually, the more precise medical terminology for intersex is DSD, which stands for Disorder of Sex Development. And as Christians, we typically understand and explain that disorders, be they medical or mental uh, disorders, are a result of the fall. In a fallen world, all of us either have medical or mental disorders, if we're, or if we don't now, eventually we will get them. Be it diabetes or depression or anxiety or arrhythmia, mental and physical disorders abound in our broken world. And I think what we see here in Matthew 19 is that Jesus acknowledges that reality. Now, the reason I bring it up is because often intersex conditions are brought into the trans conversation, and some in the trans community have tried to say that the existence of intersex individuals proves that there are more than just two genders. But actually, as Nancy Piercy points out in her book, that way of thinking actually contradicts itself. She writes this. She says, in a culture war rhetoric, in culture war rhetoric, The existence of intersex persons is often used to disrupt the male-female binary. They are often included under the umbrella of transgender to bolster the claim that there is not only male and female, but also a range in between. But that claim is self-contradictory. Intersex is a biological condition, while transgender activists insist that biology is irrelevant to the gender identity. You see, Piercy, what she points out there is that the trans community has made such a big deal by insisting that gender has nothing to do with biology, and yet to point to something biological to make the case for additional genders is contradictory. And not only that, but as Preston Sprinkle points out, when the Bible and science talk about humans as sexed creatures, they recognize two categories of sex, male and female. Though some intersex people embody traits from both categories, there are still only two categories of sex. No intersex person has an innovative new sex organ that's neither penis nor vagina, neither male nor female. You see, again, when we look at the scriptures, we see both in Genesis 1 before the fall and in Matthew 19 after the fall that there are only two sexes, two genders, that being male and female. The third really important truth that I think we see here in Genesis 1 is that as humans, we were biologically designed to procreate. So if you're in Matthew, go ahead and flip now back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's uh, look again at verse 28. You guys doing all right? This is okay. It's a little quiet in here. You're making me nervous. (laughs) Hopefully you're all right. All right, 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, when it comes to sexuality, gender, and our bodies, understanding why we were created and and the design behind that creation is very informative. You see, for example, if you woke up one morning and all of a sudden you had this spoon in your drawer and you had no other information and you grab it and you try to take some cough syrup 
And all of a sudden, the syrup begins to pour out of the hole before it gets to your mouth. Or, or maybe you grab this spoon and you try to scoop some sugar into your oatmeal. And as you scoop the sugar, it just instantly begins to fall before it makes it to your bowl. And, and look, if that was you, there's no doubt that this spoon would make you very, very frustrated. It would make you mad. It would be annoying, right? However, though, if I told you that this spoon is actually an olive spoon and that it's specifically designed to scoop an olive out of a jar while leaving the juice in the jar, you might think, wow, what a brilliant design. What a brilliant idea. And in the same way, when we understand that our bodies and our sexuality is designed to be complementary and to work together to produce children, it makes a whole lot more sense out of our purpose and our design. Now, in saying that, I'm not trying in any way to devalue singleness or those who have had infertility issues or anything like that. All I'm trying to point out is that our bodies have design and purpose behind them, and specifically, the parts of our bodies which make us biologically male or biologically female, they are designed to procreate. And that's not an accident. That's not random. That is by design. The reason women have eggs is to make a baby. The reason men have sperm is to make a baby. And because of that, gender and sexuality matter. Because of that, how you and I treat our bodies matters. I mean, let's just do a little thought experiment here. Suppose God exists, and suppose he created human beings as part of that creation. And let's just suppose that he designed their bodies to make babies. And then not only did he design them that way, but he actually commanded them to have babies and fill the earth as part of their purpose and design. And then let's just suppose that, that alongside of this, this creator God, there's also this, this rebellious, evil spiritual being. And maybe he's an enemy of this God. And let's just, you know, let's just give him a name like Satan or something like that. And let's just suppose that this Satan guy, that he hates everything God does, and he hates everything God loves. And let's just suppose that this evil spiritual being, that his whole mission is to uh, steal, to kill, and to destroy. And let's just suppose for the fact that, that he doesn't fight fair in that, and that he particularly goes after those who are vulnerable. And then let's just think about the world that we live in. Abortion. Pornography addiction, same-sex marriage, reassignment surgery, which leaves you permanently infertile. I mean, I don't know, but I would almost say that our current world isn't apologetic for belief in God and belief in Satan. I mean, it's certainly that, that way of thinking makes way, way more sense out of the world we live in rather than evolution or natural selection. I mean, the way things are going, if we are not careful, we are going to extinct ourselves. You see, again, as humans, we have been biologically designed to procreate. It's one of the main purposes of sex, and it's one of the main purposes of marriage. And I just wonder if in the long run, as Protestants, if we're going to regret downplaying or de-emphasizing that reality. Certainly our Catholic friends have been more consistent at promoting that than we have at times. Let's move on, though, and let's talk through the fourth really important thing that we learn here from Genesis 1 about gender and sexuality, and that is this. God's plan and design for gender and sexuality is very good. 
Look again at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. You see, in Genesis 2, when Moses describes the creation of man in more detail than what he does in Genesis 1, what we find out is that actually God created man first, and yet after he created Adam, God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so next, we see God bring to Adam all the different animals and birds and livestock that he created. But then it tells us in the story that there was no suitable helper found among them. And so picking the story up in chapter 2.21, it says this. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and that they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I'm not sure if you could capture all of what's going on there, but according to this passage, Adam gets so excited by this new development in the creation story that he actually breaks out into poetry. I mean, he's like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Right? Like before this in the story, God brings by the cat. He brings by the dog, the horse, even the ape. And Adam's like, no, I'm not really feeling it, God. I mean, I mean, they're good. Don't get me wrong. Very creative. Good job. But, but I'm pretty sure you can do better. It just doesn't feel like we're going to be compatible, especially that lion, right? Like he just looks like he could kill me. But then God does something new. And he brings by a naked woman in front of Adam. And Adam's like, yep, that's, that's what I'm talking about, God. That's it. Good job. And he breaks out into love songs and poetry. But listen to this. Not only is Adam pleased by this new development, not only is Adam excited by, about this new relationship, but so is God. In fact, God goes from saying that something is not good to saying it is very good. You see, sexuality and gender is God's idea. It's his design, and that design is very good. You see, God knew in creating males and females that together they would lead to human flourishing. And it's not until there is both genders that God declares something to be very good in his creation. So again, what we see here from Genesis is these four things. Number one, human beings, male and female, are created in God's image. Number two, God created two and only two distinct genders. Number three, as humans, we have been biologically designed to procreate. And then fourthly, God's plan and design for sexuality and gender are very good. Now, before we go to our last question, I just want to ask, are there any other passages that might help us as we think about this issue of gender and sexuality? Well, I think one that we have to bring up is Deuteronomy 22.5, which says this, a woman must not put on men's clothing and a man must not wear women's clothing. Now, if you're a woman in here who wore jeans and a t-shirt instead of a dress, relax, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's what this law is getting at. You see, the reality is styles have changed 
and will probably continue to change, but the principle here does not change. If you are intentionally cross-dressing in order to present yourself as the opposite of your biological sex, then I think it's clear you are violating this command. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that's, that's an Old Testament law, and I thought we didn't have to keep Old Testament laws anymore. Well, that's, that's actually not the case, nor is it that simple. In fact, I think most biblical scholars would argue that this law here is still in effect because there is nothing that takes place in the New Testament that would cause it to cease. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of, hev- uh, the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a little technical, but in Greek, one of the words here that is being used to forbid homosexuality is the Greek word malakoi, which means soft or effeminate. And and then in this context, it refers to the passive partner in male same-sex sexual activity. Now, according to Preston Sprinkle, most scholars recognize that the term primarily highlights men who act like or were considered to act like women, behaving like a woman in sexual activity as it was considered was one aspect of crossing gender boundaries. But Malakoi covers a broad range of what were considered feminine activities. The Malakoi were, as I've argued elsewhere, men who fundamentally confused gender distinctions. You see, not only is this passage forbidding homosexual activity, but it's also forbidding confusing gender distinctions, which is not that unsimilar to the law we just looked at in Deuteronomy. You see, there may not be a ton of passages that speak directly to transgender questions, but even still, the scriptures make it clear that there are only two biological genders, and whenever some sort of cross-gender behavior is mentioned, it speaks of it negatively. And so all of this brings us to the key question in this conversation, which is this, if someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? See, we we recognize that, that it is a very real reality that some individuals do struggle with this, that there is that war between their brain and their body, but the question is still, the key question is, which one determines and why? Well, if you're examining the scriptures, I think it's very clear that biological sex is what determines our gender regardless of what our mind or our culture tells us. So with that said, let's go to that last question then, which is this. How should the church and believers respond to all of this? Well, certainly I think we would all agree that as believers, Jesus is our model. In John chapter 1, we are told that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Another way I think you could think about that is that Jesus came full of empathy and conviction. Now, in terms of grace or empathy, I think the first thing we need to say here is that as evangelicals, we haven't always got things right when it comes to loving and interacting with the LGBTQ community. Now, I realize that that's a blanket statement, and maybe you feel like that's not true of you, and maybe you're right. 
However, I do think that some of the accusations about us do stick. Things like not being consistent and calling out sexual sin. Some evangelicals are really good at railing against LGBT issues and sexual sins while conveniently ignoring, or at the very least, de-emphasizing or talking less about heterosexual sin or even pornography. As well, I think it's fair to say that there have been some prominent evangelicals who have said some pretty harsh and unkind things when it comes to members of the LGBTQ community. You see, the reality is, is that as believers, when we encounter an individual from that community, we need to remember and we need to work hard to see them as a person not as a political problem, not as an icon of the breakdown of society, but rather as a person who is created in the image of God and who is therefore fearfully and wonderfully made. And not only that, but I think we also need to remember the rest of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, which I just read a minute ago. You see, I only read verses 9 and 10, which talk about the fact that, that these different people with these different sin struggles won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, when we think about and when we encounter those who are struggling with their gender and with their sexuality, one of the primary emotions you and I should feel as Christians is empathy. And we should have empathy because as Christians, we more than anyone else know what it's like to be lost and confused and enslaved to sin. You see, our hearts should be like Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, when, he said, when it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so with that, I just wanna say, if you are someone here who finds yourself struggling with your identity or with your sexuality, I hope that you know that as a church, we love you. You are welcome here. And as pastors, we would love to talk with you and to hear your story. And with that, I think as Christians, we should take time to get educated on this topic, both uh, biblically in terms of understanding what does the Bible say, but also culturally, meaning understanding some of the various terms in this discussion. Again, some great books that I would recommend are books like Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, another one called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, Both of those books have a chapter dedicated to the trans conversation. As well, I've mentioned Preston Sprinkle multiple times. His book, Embodied, is dedicated to the topic, and in general, I think it's pretty good. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says or his approach, but I do think that he is biblically orthodox on this topic, and I think he has worked really hard to build bridges and relationships to the LGBTQ community, which I really respect. If I had to guess, I would assume The gift of mercy is one of his top spiritual gifts, which probably informs his approach. In addition to getting educated, I'd also encourage you to think through practical questions around this issue by talking with other Christian friends or life group leaders or pastors. Things like what to do about pronouns or how to handle things at work or or what do you do if you own your own business or restaurant and you have a public restroom. What if you're a teacher or a state employee or you work somewhere else where these kinds of questions come up regularly? 
You see, I'm sure many of you have already had to think through a lot of those practical questions, but if you haven't, I would strongly encourage you to start now instead of waiting until you are forced to. As well, I would encourage all of us to seek out relationship with folks in this community, whether it's a coworker or a family member or a neighbor. Show them hospitality, buy them lunch, have them over for dinner. Ask them about their life, ask them about their story. As Preston Sprinkle has pointed out, if you've met one trans person, you've only met one trans person. Meaning, not every trans person thinks the same, believes the same, or has the same story. Not every person who struggles with gender dysphoria is an LGBTQ activist who's trying to burn down our society. Now look, I understand if you have little kids at home and maybe you're not ready for those conversations yet, and I think that's totally legit and fine. However, though, I think most of us can find ways to be kind or to show hospitality, even if it's not having someone in our home. And so again, as we think about one of our main responses uh, for the church and for believers, I think it should be one of empathy and grace. At the same time, though, I think the other response that we should have is truth and conviction. Again, Jesus came full of grace, but he also came full of truth. Jesus Christ did not lack moral clarity. He did not lack moral conviction. And as followers of Jesus, we can't afford to lack those things either. We must know what we believe and why we believe it according to the word of God. I mean, look, guys, this is our generation of believers issue to get right. Past generations of Christians may have dealt with and defended things like miracles or the deity of Jesus or biblical inerrancy or whatever, but whether we like it or not, sexuality and gender is our issue to hold the line on. And because of that, I think John 6 is a helpful and encouraging passage for us to think about the moment that we are in. In John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus gets into this really interesting discussion with the crowd where he tells them that he is the bread of life. But then after telling them that, he tells them that in order to have life, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, I don't really have time to get into that passage or to explain it, but at some point after saying this, the people in the crowds, many of have been following Jesus for a, a period of time at this point, they respond by saying, that's a hard saying. Who can accept it or who can listen to it? And then in verse 66 of John 6, it says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? You see, this issue of sexuality and gender is a dividing line. And for our culture, it's a hard saying. And even for some professed Christians, it's a hard saying. And they don't want to accept it or listen to it. Lots of people have walked away and will continue to walk away from the faith and or away from biblical orthodox sexuality. And yet, my encouragement to you and to our church is to respond like Peter did after Jesus asked them that, when they asked him if he wanted them to leave, which is, Lord, where would we go? Or to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it is true, Jesus alone does have the words of eternal life. And because of that, my last encouragement here for us as we think about how to respond is to pray for revival. 
You see, I've told you before, but uh, for many years now, I've had a particular interest and fascination with the Jesus People Revolution of the late 60s and 70s. And there's so many things about it that I find interesting, but the main thing that fascinates me is the fact that God went after and he saved the most unlikely group of people, namely the hippies. And when you think about the hippies, what you realize is that they were young, they were desperate for identity, they were desperate for community, and they were hungry and desperate for meaning and purpose in their life. And as I think about our current culture and as I think about the LGBTQ community, I see many of those same exact things, those same exact desires. And just like how the hippies seemed impossible to reach with the gospel, so too does the LGBTQ community. And yet, God has done it before, and I believe, and I pray, and I hope that you'll pray that he does it again. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for clarity. Father, thank you that you're, you're not confused about your creation. You're not confused about your design. But Father, we recognize that we do live in a broken world. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are broken. There is confusion. There's pain. And Father, we... We just ask, I ask for this church, this community, that we would be the kind of people who are full of grace and full of truth, that we would have empathy, but that we would also have conviction. And Lord, we do pray, we ask for revival. God, our world needs revival. Lord, we either need you to return like right now, or we need a, a, an outpouring of your spirit and we need revival. We're not gonna make it, Lord. So please, we beg you. We know you've done it before, Lord. Many in this room, many in this room, Lord, and the birth of our church happened among hippies, among young people who were lost, who were confused, who were pursuing the wrong, uh, the wrong things that they thought would bring them happiness and, and, and clarity and purpose. And yet, God, in an instant, over a period of several years, Lord, you drew thousands and thousands of men and women to yourself. And you did it again, Lord, in the most unlikely group of people. And Lord, we ask you, do it again. Do it again, Lord, have compassion on us. Lord, when we look at our society, it is a group of people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so would you come, Lord, would you, would you pour out your spirit? I pray this in Jesus' name.